This morning, uh, we're going to have the last of what turned out to be four lessons on worry. Uh, was this going to be one? Uh, decided there was more to say about worry uh, after the first one and kept feeling that all the way till today. There's still more, but I think we can round it out today as I want to take us to what a worry-free life looks like. What a worry-free life looks like. We've talked about what worry is and how it's a physical and an emotional reaction. We've looked at how God dealt with one man, Elijah, with worry. We've talked about how to handle worry through prayer and what prayer does. And finally today, once you've determined to kick worry, sinful worry, out of your life, what will your life look like? What are features that will be solidly in place so that worry can't find its way back in? You can't just tell yourself, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You got to get rid of it. You got to work on keeping it out, but you have to replace it. You have to replace it with something that always keeps worry on the outside of your life. And that can be done, and we're going to look at that in just a few moments in Philippians 4, 4 through 9. It was kind of nice to see at school this week uh, what worry-free students look like. Uh, School started on Wednesday. We went through three days of school. And for the first time, I got to see some students without masks. For three years, whether it be on Zoom or in person, I'd only seen their eyes. Uh, I'd not seen their full face. And all of a sudden, I've seen st- some students I didn't even recognize uh, at the very beginning. And then all of a sudden, I know who this is. And it was such a beauty to see them. And... I can testify that things are better at schools now. There's a spirit of normalcy in the good way of normalcy, where I think people are beginning to embrace life again and not fearful of what could happen. Um, And it's nice to see that. And there was a visual representation simply on the faces of my students. I could see what the lack of fear looked like, not fear in this dreaded COVID. Well, in the lives of Christians, you can see it in your own life and in the lives of others when there's a life that's free of worry. But I want to make sure, first of all, we understand what we're not talking about. We're not talking about what was popularized in the great animated film, The Lion King. Remember the great theme song from that movie, uh, Timon and Pumbaa? Uh, No worries. Uh, No worry uh, philosophy. Well, what were those two characters doing as they lived a worry-free life? They simply weren't engaging it. They were just goofing off all the time and having fun and and just disregarding their responsibilities. That was their idea. That's not what a worry-free life looks like. You don't just say, well, I'm just going to let Jesus take the wheel of my life. I'm not going to pay my bills. I'm not going to go to work. No worries. That is not a worry-free life. If anything, you are more engaged in life. You are taking on challenges, maybe even taking biblical risks to do things you haven't done before, all because you're not consumed by fear that Satan uses to hold you back. So if a worry-free life is full of engagement, responsibility, taking life seriously, sacrificing at times things you want for things you need, but it's done with a calm sense of purpose where you're not shaken by these things. And you're not having one sleepless light after another, or you're not preoccupied with things that God says, let me take control of these things that you can't control. 
your life embodies a sense of peace. Paul said, let the peace of God be with you at all times after he told believers not to worry. Well, we're going to look through the lens of the life of the Apostle Paul this morning to look at Philippians 4 in just a moment. I just want to remind you about the life of the Apostle Paul. Next to Jesus, the most prominent person of the New Testament. Uh, his life started out, he's a devout Jewish man committed to the principles of the Jewish faith, uh, even to the point of persecuting early Christians because he thought early Christians were against God. Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to him in bodily form as he's on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. Paul is converted uh, by not only seeing Jesus, he goes and is baptized, he's taught the gospel by a man named Ananias. And then all of a sudden he goes from being persecuted to one of the most devout followers of Christ, or being a persecutor to one of the most devout followers of Jesus. An unstoppable man. He becomes an apostle. That means he was chosen directly by Jesus to carry out the Christian message. Thirteen of the 27 books of the New Testament were penned by the Apostle Paul as the Spirit of God spoke with him to churches and to individuals. He ends up going from being a persecutor to a persecuted man. That is, he becomes persecuted by the Roman Empire and also by his Jewish countrymen for his faith in Jesus. It's the opposite of his early life. And he ends up dying as a martyr, most likely in Rome, as he stood trial for simply his faith in Jesus Christ, but being blamed as some kind of insurrectionist. He writes about his life as he goes through these tumultuous experiences. And to appreciate what we're going to see in Philippians 4, I want to quickly read some of the things he went through as he talks about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 11, and 10. You can just listen along, but if you want to follow along, you can. But look at what he's experienced in life. Just to show you, he wasn't in a monastery somewhere. He wasn't all holed up in his bedroom writing things and saying good things to Christians. He was engaged. Look at this, Flip, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, um, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles, the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, that's stress, far beyond our ability to endure, verse 8, so that we despaired even of life itself. He said, I thought I was going to die. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here Paul says, I thought at times I was going to die. I really did because of the threats upon me. He doesn't stop there in chapter 11. As he's defending his true apostleship in the Lord Jesus. He talks about his experiences, things he's gone through that show his devout faith. He says, are they servants of Christ, these other people? He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, I have worked more harder, or worked much harder, I'm sorry, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in dangers in the country, in dangers at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure, the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And this is a man who said, do not worry. But look at his life. He is fully engaged, even risking his life at many times. One more text, chapter 12. He says, that is why for Christ's sake a delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know the verse. Well, how does he do that? What does that life look like where you can go from risking death and even being in the open sea a night and a day to still saying, don't worry, what does that life look like? Now let's turn to Philippians 4. We'll turn here and this will be the only... A text we'll be turning to the rest of the lesson. It's what we read at the beginning. Remember what we just read about the Apostle Paul's life. All the risk, the dangers, the threats, the stresses he calls it, the pressure. But he still says this to the Philippian church. Verse 4. And we'll look at five things he says. But let's start verse, verse 4, Philippians 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be ev evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the peace, or the God of peace, will be with you. We've looked at this text multiple times. But I decided... Let me look at the verses previous to the statements, do not worry, but in everything by prayer and petition, let your request be known to God. What does he say before that? And then what does he say after that? He's basically describing a life and what it looks like if you're not consumed with worry. And there's five things I notice. Here's the first. Five features of a worry-free life in Christ. Again, this is a life in Christ. This is not a kuna batata. This is not just someone that lives on the beach all the time and they don't have words. This is an engaged life. Five features. And it's a believer's life. There are a lot of books by non-believers about living worry-free. They've just mastered some different life principles of management. 
But there's some things where you cannot escape the stress of the problem that only in Christ can you escape and still live. Here's the first feature. Continual rejoicing in the Lord. Continual rejoicing in the Lord. Look what he says in verse 4. Before he ever says, do not worry or to pray, he simply tells him to do this first. Rejoice in the Lord always. Then in case someone missed it, what does he say again? I will say it again. <laughs> Rejoice. He wants to make sure you didn't miss it. What does that mean? Rejoice in the Lord. First of all, he doesn't say, he does not say, look for a problem-free life. It is not promised in Scripture. When you're baptized, you might have more problems than you ever had. All of a sudden, your family's against you. Your co-workers don't like the new you. You're dealing with temptations you used to let go. Uh, everything's different. You're having to take on challenges in a way that you never did. A Christian life is not a problem-free life. It's not a stress-free life. There are going to be stressors. You're just going to handle them very differently than before. And he first says, you rejoice in the Lord. The Christian word joy or rejoice is very different from the word happy. We're happy based on what happens in the moment. I might tell a student, hey, I'm happy you finished your test. Let's get out of here. Uh, they just did something in the moment that brought joy to me. But at times I've said that and I've gone right out in the hallway and all of a sudden there's a fight I have to break up. Happiness is very fleeting. It's momentary. But joy allows you to get through either the happy moments or the difficult times with this continual thought, I will be okay. And I will get through this experience. Because you are where? You rejoice in the Lord. Exactly, Jimena. This is it. When we've turned things over to God in prayer and we're living already the way He wants us to live in faithful obedience, you can take on the happy moments or the fight in the hallway that tears the court, and you can just kind of handle it without becoming unglued, without thinking this is the end, or without abandoning your faith or abandoning your responsibility because it's just too hard. You simply know the Lord will see me through and this too shall pass. The Lord will see me through and this too shall pass. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's good times and bad. And again I say rejoice. When you are in the Lord and you know you have a God who's in control of all things, and when you cast all your care upon Him because He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, you've done all you can do and you can rise above those circumstances. They still come. The bills still come due. The problematic neighbors are not going to move. But you can kind of get through those because you rise above it. But some people don't rise above their circumstances because they're not in the Lord. A preacher tells a story one time about... Him asking uh, one of the believers at church, he was all downcast one sort, Sunday morning and all this down. He asked him in the foyer after the service, well, well, how you doing? Well, pretty well under the circumstances. The preacher goes, what are you doing under there? Believers are not supposed to live under the circumstances. They live above. 
But that's not a kuna matata. That's simply, I will take everything to the Lord in prayer. I will go to work tomorrow. I will pay my bills. I will be friendly to who I know I need to be friendly to. And despite all these things that are unsettled in my life, I will rejoice in the Lord that He will get me through as He always has. That is priceless, and it's something that is a hallmark of our faith. Because the big picture of our life is different. Our Savior has dealt with our past. He's with us every moment of our life in the present. And He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. Our past, present, and future are secure. And that's why we can rejoice in the Lord. And these temporal things cannot touch us. They can hurt at the moment. They can cause us to seize up in a second. But as we, the Lord has got this, as He always has, that is a blessing. So Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let that be the hallmark of your life too. It's how Paul lives a worry-free life. Here's the second. There's constant anticipation of the Lord's return. If you're going to live a worry-free life in the Lord, there's uh, first, this rejoicing. And the second, there's a constant anticipation that the Lord's going to return. Look again at Philippians 4, verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be evident for all. That's that calmness, that peace that passes all understanding. People are seeing it. But then he says, the Lord is near. But what does the second coming of Christ have to do with living a worry-free life of peace? First of all, you know that there is a great day coming. When Scripture says the Lord is near, that's not saying He's coming tomorrow or look for Him next week or try to pick a date in the future. Believers have fallen into that trap throughout the centuries trying to pick a day of Christ's return and He is still yet to return. Here when Paul says the Lord is near, it simply means He's close. I remember my grandmother growing up, she'd come stay with us and we'd go stay with her down in her mobile home down in El Cajon, California. She would always be ready to go to church. On Sunday morning, before all of us were up, she was dressed. She had her hair done. She used to get her hair done on Saturday night, and then she'd wrap it in toilet paper uh, to keep it all together because she didn't want to spend the money for anything more expensive. She'd keep it all wrapped and put bobby pins in there. We'd see her walking around because she was getting ready for Sunday. And that morning, she'd be up, and she'd have her nicest dress on, her shoes on, and many times as we were getting ready. She was already sitting on the couch, her purse and her Bible in hand, just always ready to go. She didn't know what time we'd be ready, but she was always ready. And that's what Paul's saying when he says the Lord is near. The Lord could come at any moment. You always want to be ready. Well, what does that do for faith and worry and things like that? Well, it tells you that there's something bigger coming that's going to eclipse all these earthly concerns. There's a great day coming where your PG&E bill, or the rent being due, or this personnel problem at work, or this family estrangement, is going to be eclipsed by the return of our Lord. And that puts every problem in perspective. 
This week, our principal put an email. By the way, I'm going to be visiting all your classes this week, see how things are going. And your principal says they're coming by in the hallway. Everything that was unimportant as part of my role as a teacher got set aside. I wanted to make sure when she came to the classroom, Eddie wasn't hanging off the roof or uh, there wasn't some kind of disarray or lack of teaching going on because the principal's coming. Knowing there's a great day coming, the return of Christ kind of sets your life in order naturally. You're not going to spend days on end getting all wrapped up in how you're going to refinance and get this percentage rate or how you're going to uh, somehow make this move. and You're not going to be worried and consumed about those things. Because when you're on your way to Canaan's land, as we sang about at the very beginning, a lot of things just get put in their place. You don't ignore them or forget about them or pawn them off on other people. You just don't spend as much time with them. Earthly concerns are eclipsed by our future. Don't get caught up in things that will not matter in eternity. Eternity is all that matters. Keep everything in perspective. Your bills, your uncertainties, your job future, all of that will not matter the day the Lord returns. So take care of those things, but go on to eternal things. Get back to prayer. Get back to assembling with the saints at church. Get back to uh, engaging with serving others, because those things will echo in eternity. The things you do to help people, the time you spend with God, that will carry on to eternity. But not your bills, not your potential conflicts, and things like that. So keep them all in proper order. Because when the king comes, you want your house in order, not found in disarray because you've had priorities in other places. Ask yourself if you're not sure, will this that I'm consumed with really matter in the end? Will this matter that I'm really consumed with right now, will it really matter in the end? I can't remember some of the things I was worried about three weeks ago. Because life just moves on. Some things just take care of themselves. Other things the Lord takes care of. I can't remember all the things I was consumed with three months ago because life just moved on. I remember painful moments. I remember stressful times. But they've been eclipsed by the things that await in the future that are good. So, if there's constant anticipation, you're always ready, like my grandmother, always ready to go, other things just line up. Number three, consistent thanksgiving. Consistent thanksgiving. Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about everything. I'm sorry, let me just back up. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And we spent time with this um, at least last week and probably a little bit in other weeks to come. We won't belabor the point. We're just going to underline it or highlight it. Consistent thanksgiving is one of your most powerful weapons against persistent worry. Consistent thanksgiving is one of your most powerful weapons against persistent worry. Thanksgiving reminds you of what God's already given you. 
giving you a place to live, transportation, taking care of your health, blessing you with people that are surrounding you that know about your life. There's an endless list of things to be thankful for. Yesterday I was in the garage with somebody that lives in our condo complex and it's kind of an older complex and built in the 80s and not built the best of ways and we were talking about, boy, is this, is this place worth remodeling? Is this place really worth investing in? And it's kind of easy when your neighbors to talk about all the things that are wrong in the neighborhood. What things, oh, this is terrible, and there's weeds in the front yard. It's easy to talk about the negative things. But then he made the point, but our view is beautiful. And he go, I go, Michael, you're right, it is. We have this beautiful view. We have parking for our cars, the complex next door, you only get one spot, and then you've got to be outside. And it's quiet where we live. We're really nice people. And you have your choice. Do you want to be thankful for what you do have that's right in your life? Most important people, safety, security, food, clothing. Or do you always want to harp on what's wrong? My neighbor and I, we could have gone on for half an hour about all the things. We could see them from cobwebs to, to weeds to questionable construction. We could talk about all those negative things or we could be simply thankful for what we already had. And we started just doing that. There's a lot of really nice things about where we live. And we're thankful for that. Ask yourself, am I a generally thankful person? Or am I always talking about what's not right and what's wrong? There's a lot of people that they traffic in complaining. <laughs> That's their conversational model. What's wrong? What's wrong? And don't get caught up in that. Be specifically thankful for things. There's a lot of non-believers who are just thankful, and that's very smart. But in the Lord, you're thankful to God. It's not just accidentally that things are going right. You're thankful to God for blessing you with things that you need and what are good for you. You take everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving. You reject jealousy. I want what someone else has. I'm mad that I don't have it. Reject envy, or you're never happy because you don't have what others have. And you reject comparison when you're a thankful person. You're not always comparing yourself to someone else and Oh, they got this, and they got that. Oh, they, oh, they're born in a rich family. Oh, they, they just get all the perks at work. They get all the privileges. You don't think like that when you're a thankful person. You're thankful for what you have. That's a good thing that people maybe in third world countries would die to have <laughs> as they search out for just water and food to get through the day, if they can even find it. We are richly blessed. So let us be thankful not only on thanksgiving, but be thankful and have a life full of thanksgiving, not just on one day. If you need to keep a list, keep a list. Update it all the time with what you have. So when the evil one comes to talk about what you don't have or what you're not sure about, you can show him your other list. You can't touch me because I have all these things and my Lord has blessed me with him and he will see me through. So consistent thanksgiving is the third feature of a worry-free life. Here's the fourth. Preoccupation with good things. Preoccupation with good things. You guys say, well, John, I thought we weren't supposed to be preoccupied with things. Some things you are. And some things you're not supposed to be pre preoccupied. You're not 
supposed to be preoccupied with money. The love of money is the root of all evil. You're not supposed to be preoccupied with envy or jealousy. Don't be preoccupied with those things. Don't be preoccupied with what might happen or what could happen or what maybe happened five years ago that could happen again. Don't be consumed with what could happen. Don't be preoccupied with that. But you are to be preoccupied with good things. What do you mean, John? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Right after he tells him to pray and not be anxious about anything, he says, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul is talking here about a healthy preoccupation. He wants your mind consumed with good things. Well, how do you do that? Well, first, you've got to find the sources of negativity and shut them off. Start with the news. The news will not get any advertising revenue with good things. There will never be a lead story about how that a young man helped an elderly woman cross the street that day. That will never sell advertising. So who shot who? What car crashes? What happened? What bad things? What scandals? What this Hollywood star did this? And this Hollywood, I mean, this politician did that? And they're going to always flood with those negative things because that sells advertising. And they're in the advertising revenue business. That's what pays them. There'll, ne there'll never be a source of good news. You might have to shut down websites that always talk about the sky is falling. Ten things that could happen next year with your money. Five things that could happen with a different president. There's Christians that are consumed with conspiracy theories. and This is what could happen. And there's this dark world out there of people pulling levers and what could happen. You can't get consumed with that. But instead, look for the good things. Look for what's good that's going on in your street. Look for a neighbor that's helping another neighbor. Look for young people that enjoy just simply being together. And When I see a young person at school go find someone that kind of is alone a lot, and say, hey, why don't you come eat lunch with us? Or, hey, let's do this. That makes my day as a teacher. I love seeing young people do that. Let those things make your day. When you find something good in your Facebook feed that someone did, don't just keep scrolling looking for something negative. Stop there and, hey, that's a great thing. Let me read this story. What, who helped who? How did this happen? There is good out there. But you're going to have to search for it. And when you see it, stop and spend time with it to realize the world is not just destroying itself. There's a lot of good out there. It's just not that attractive to the eye that is trained to look for negative, salacious, ungodly things. You will have to look for the good, but you will find it. There's good and good conversations. There's people that want to share something that, that's good that happened to them that week, or something good that their grandchild did, or a card that they received. When people tell you something good, don't just, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Let me tell you what happened yesterday to me, though. Don't go to your own negativity or, or try to find something negative. Talking about the bad weather. Talking about the good weather. We might have rain this week. But you're like, oh, there's a hurricane out there. Mexico coming up. You know. And uh, you've got to look, just like my neighbor and I did. Let's look for the good in our condo complex. We'll get so consumed with the negativity, the bad, that we're not going to be good for anybody. Be preoccupied with good things. What's lovely, what's admirable, Paul says. Things that are praiseworthy. That is, people doing what is right. Things that are noble. Look for it. Write those things down. Here's ten good things I found on my social media. Or here's ten good stories someone told me last week. They told me, hey, I got this job. Or, hey, I got a phone call from my daughter. Or, I think this might be coming away. Camp out on those things when you hear them. Because that's something good, praiseworthy, and noble. When you read Scripture, you're doing something praiseworthy. You're filling your mind with good things. When you reflect upon your life, all the times that God has seen you through, whether it be in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all those times where the Lord saw you through, a lot of times when I go bike riding, it can be a little boring, except for the dodging of cars, but I try to just use that time to think about stuff that I don't really get a chance to think about. I'll even talk to myself on my bike sometimes, and if you ever see me, you might think, what's wrong with that guy? But I'll, I'll talk about things in my life that, wow, 20 years ago, I can't believe that this happened and it changed everything. Or this was something good that I never really thought about that was good someone offered to me. It's a time of reflection. Look for inspirational things. Just type in the word inspiration in Scripture. There's biblical inspiration in Scripture, but there's also just things that are good. Growing up, we had the Reader's Digest. My mom always used to put it in the bathroom. And, uh, but it was around the house at times, and there were always good stories. I mean, there were like, Drama in real life, and that was always interesting, drama in real life. But there were a lot of good things, little short, pithy things. And, oh, that's nice. There's a lot of good things out there, but they just don't get the attention of the bad. But once you start looking for them, you're going to find them pretty quickly. Be preoccupied with them, and worry will keep finding a locked door in your life. If you're so consumed with good things, worry is going to be pulling the doorknob and trying to get in. Keep you awake at night and it can't get in because your mind is consumed with good things that the Lord has done or is doing. Preoccupation with good things is a fourth feature of a worry-free life. Here's the fifth. Faithful practice of Christian principles. The fifth feature of a worry-free Christian life is faithful practice of Christian principles. Look at verse 9. Our closing verse of Philippians chapter 4. Look what Paul tells them after he tells them to not be anxious about anything but to pray. He says, verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul did a lot of teaching in his 13 letters in the New Testament. He talked from how you communicate. He talked about how you treat your spouse. He talked about how children obey their parents. He talked about what you 
think about, what you do, what you say. There's not one area of the Christian life that the Apostle Paul did not touch. He modeled what he taught. He suffered persecution. He put up with even believers at times that were jealous, maligning him, and he kept on preaching. He lived with very little in chapter 4. He says, I've learned how to not have anything. I've learned how to have a lot. He practiced what he preached. And he tells the Philippian Christians here, whatever you've heard me teach, whatever you receive from me, verse 9, or you've seen me do, he doesn't say think about it some more or put it in sermon notes. He says what? Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Do more than just thinking about the Christian life. Do more than just thinking or singing about the Christian life. What did James say in James chapter 2 about faith? Faith without works is dead. Don't be someone just that's full of Scripture but little low on the application. We're taught to serve one another and help one another put those things into practice. If you're not sure what that looks like, this building is full of people that serve their brothers and sisters. And I can list them really quick. I always hear things that they're doing. And not from them all the time. In fact, most of the time it's from others saying so-and-so did this. Because they're living the Christian life. There's no need to be paralyzed by fear when you can be consumed with productivity. And that doesn't mean filling your day so full of busyness that you are stressed out trying to do good. God's not looking for that. He's looking for people that can take the time to write a card of encouragement to someone. They maybe can't get out and drive and do everything, but they can sure write a good card. Or send an email. Or they take a moment to send a text just to encourage someone. Because that's what they can do. They can visit maybe a sick person. They can offer a ride. They can help out financially as appropriate. They can write maybe a short letter. Maybe they're, you're really good at conversation. If you're a good listener, if you're someone that likes listening more than talking, the world leads, needs you desperately. <laughs> it's hard to find a listener. There are many therapists that wake, make well over $200 an hour because they know to listen. Because someone has a lot of pain they don't know that anyone cares about. And they don't have anyone to talk to that's objective. And the therapist will listen, will ask questions, try to deepen their understanding. And therapists rarely give an answer. They just help you kind of see your issues more clearly by their questions and by their listening. And you can leave an hour later. They didn't tell you anything to do, but you feel better. If you are a listener to someone that is blessing someone. That is faithful practice of a Christian principle. Paul said, let your conversation always be seasoned by salt. So knowing how to have a healthy conversation is a blessing to others. Knowing when to give to people and knowing when maybe not to give, that's a Christian practice. 
and doing simply what you can do. There's not too many of us that will be a Mother Teresa and go to Calcutta to work with abandoned children. But we can work within our neighborhoods, our schools, our communities, our relationships to be a blessing to the people we see all the time. That's putting your faith into practice. When you're so busy doing, Satan's going to have a hard time getting in the window of your life with his worry. You don't have time to think about it because you're not laying around on the couch. You, you don't have a whole lot of time to watch the news. You're living the news. You're living. You're, you're creating your own news by doing good things in your life. Let that be true of you. When you do, you're going to find worry just will go away. Satan will go into someone else's life to try to attack them with worry. But when you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're anticipating Christ's return, you're consistently thankful, you're preoccupied by good in your mind and also in your action. How does Satan get in to that kind of life? How does Satan get into that kind of life that features these five things? He will try. The scripture says if he can't get in, he will go on. And you can take on this sin of worry that is so consuming of so many people. We end this series today. Hopefully you found something good that you can apply to this challenge of worry. We all face it on different levels. And if we don't now, we will later. Satan always comes back to see if that door is still locked in your life. He wants to check it like a security guard. And if he finds that door unlocked, he's going to bring all those worries back. But if it's locked, he's going to leave you alone. At least in this area. May God find us faithful when he sends back his son. Again, one of our features is the Lord is returning. We're marching to Zion. Canaan, as we sang about, is simply a figure of heaven. Our eternal home awaits us. Let us deal with these temporal concerns as God wants us to. May we strengthen each other and pray constantly to God for help in doing so. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song to encourage us to take steps of faith and obedience. But it's always a time for someone to share a request with others for prayer, or maybe a situation someone doesn't know about. Or maybe someone is seeking God and looking to be obedient to God in the way they want to be, but they're not exactly sure how. The church here stands ready to help, whether you make that need be known publicly or privately, to look at the Bible with you, to see where it fits, to get you on a path where now you know you're doing what God wants you to do, or even be baptized into Christ, which is the ultimate step of putting your life in obedience to God, in Christ, where all these blessings come, and you secure your place with God based on what He did for you through His Son Jesus on the cross. The blessed Christian life awaits all those who embrace it.